there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Witness Docs from Stitcher. No one knows where Isidore Banks is buried. His grave is said to be out at the edge of town, in the back of Marion's old African-American cemetery. You couldn't find my grandfather's grave stone at all. This is Lena Williams, Isidore's granddaughter. What had happened to it? I think it just sunk down into the ground over all those years, you know, because it was a, a flat headstone. The African-American cemetery sits at the edge of Marion, out where the houses fade into bean fields. Going down that road... You first come up on one cemetery, really nice, really clean, and every stone is together and it's all white. It's a white cemetery. And you go a little further, you come up on the black cemetery. Totally different. Totally different, though. The stones are at all in a row, you know, and they don't have the aisles or the, the roads and things that you can go down. You literally are walking on grave sites. So in 2010, Isidore's family picked another plot for him, right at the front of the African-American cemetery, where he couldn't be lost or forgotten. Isidore was a veteran, and the U.S. military provided a bright white marble headstone. And a little later that year, Lena drove down from St. Louis with her mother, Dorothy, reversing the journey Dorothy had made as a little girl when Isidore sent her out of Arkansas just before he was killed. They'd come back to Marion for a graveside service that was decades overdue. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It is with great pleasure that I stand here before you this morning. It was a bright autumn morning. A dozen or so men gathered around Isidore's grave in sharp black suits and spotless white aprons. Brother Banks was a member, and our history and stuff shows that he had been a member of Friendship Lodge Number 39, located here in Marion. The men were members of the Prince Hall Freemasons, a fraternal order for African-American men that dates back to the Revolutionary War. Members helped each other in business and education, and they served their communities, too. When a Mason dies, they receive a graveside ceremony called Last Rites, a kind of fraternal farewell. But Isidore never received his last rites. And for whatever reason, that he did not get these services and stuff, then it is our obligation to fulfill this today. 56 years. 56 years. 
that Brother Isidore Banks will finally get his sonic rights. Two of the men stood behind Isidore's headstone, holding long white staffs. Each mason pulled a sprig of evergreen from his suit pocket, a symbol of the immortality of the soul. And at the end of the service, the masons presented Dorothy and Lena with a plaque. So I'd like to this token to you, Sister William, again, on behalf of the most Western Prince of Grandmother. For Lena, the ceremony was a small victory, an act of resistance against forgetting. But she also had another mission. She'd spent years doing her own investigation, trying to figure out who killed her grandfather and what had happened to his thousand acres of land. And after the ceremony, Lena got word that a 90-year-old white woman, an Italian woman named Vera Simonetti, might know something about Isidore's murder, and she wanted to talk. She called a Mr. Ben McGee and asked him to bring me to her house. Ben McGee is a former Arkansas state representative. He'd grown up in Crittenden County, hearing Isidore's story. And he'd been helping Lena with her grandfather's case. Lena had never heard of Vera Simonetti, but Ben had known Vera for years. She knew a lot about the town's history. So Ben arranged a meeting, and after the last rite ceremony, he and Lena drove out to Vera's house on the east side of town. And we were sitting there talking. She looked at me for about a good 15 seconds. She just looked at me, and she said, I loved your grandfather. We all loved your grandfather. Vera came from a big Italian farming family that had lived near Isidore for decades, farmed alongside him, even exchanged little gifts with him at Christmas. But around the time of his death, Lena said Vera told her something went very wrong. She told me that one night, she said she was just a girl. Her father came in the house She said she had never seen her dad like that before in her life. He was throwing things. He was cursing. He was storming mad. And he kept saying, damn it, I told them not to kill him. And she's like, who is he talking about? Who is he talking about? And he kept saying, I told them not to kill him. I told them to just scare him. I'm Neil Shea. And I'm Taylor Hom. This is Unfinished Deep South. Episode 9, The Meeting. Me and Ben looked at each other. You know, like, oh my God, she just incriminated her dad. And I said, Miss Simonetti... You are you talking about my, my grandfather? And she said, yes. My dad kept saying that he told them not to kill your grandfather just to scare him because they wanted the land deeds. And then me and Ben looked at each other again, like, oh, my God. According to Lena, Vera was saying that Isidore had been murdered over land and that her father a prominent Italian farmer, was somehow involved. She never took her eyes off of me. She kept saying that her dad was hurt beyond hurt. 
because my grandfather and her dad were businessmen. They worked together. They did things together. They and grandfather did a lot with a lot of the the white people and Italian people there in the town. And he was just stormy, mad. Lena had talked to a lot of white people in Marion, and no one had told her anything like this before. She was stunned. But the conversation was brief. And later, as she drove back to St. Louis, she was haunted by the questions she didn't get to ask. Questions like, who did Vera's father believe killed Isidore? Who did he tell to scare him? And was it Vera's father who wanted Isidore's land, or was it someone else? Lena wanted answers, but the investigation had also become overwhelming. Rumors of suspects, motives, land theft, they swirled around her in a cloud that never seemed to clear. And so the questions hung out there, until Vera died in 2014, about three years before we picked up the case. Lena didn't record her conversation with Vera. She didn't have any written notes, just her memory of what was said. But Lena's conversation with Vera lined up with what we'd read in the secret NAACP report, the one we'd discovered in the Library of Congress. That report mentioned a theory that Isidore might have been lynched by Italian farmers who wanted land he'd been renting from a white woman. For this story to make sense, we needed more details, more names, specific locations, So we tried to find other ways to figure out what Vera knew. And one of the first things we did was focus on Vera. Vera Beretti Simonetti was a small, powerful woman with a kind smile, a quick temper, and a way with politics. For more than 30 years, she was an influential member of the Crittenden County Quorum Court. That's the panel of elected officials that essentially runs the county. She was also a justice of the peace and a political kingmaker. Early in her political career, Vera began encouraging African-American candidates to run for office. But Vera was also a product of her time and place. She was born in 1920 to an immigrant Italian family, one of the first to settle in Marion during the era when Italians weren't considered white. She likely experienced prejudice and racism firsthand. And while she supported African-American politicians, there were limits to how far she would go. For example, in her role as Justice of the Peace, she often presided over marriage ceremonies. But apparently, she'd refused to perform ceremonies for mixed-race couples. Still, most people told us that Vera was a force of nature, and often a force for good. Vera retired from politics in 2009, and when she died a few years later, she was remembered as a dedicated public servant who wasn't afraid to take on powerful interests. She fought for raises for county employees. She fought for budget transparency on behalf of taxpayers. And during the early 2000s, she became a critic of Crittenden County's Drug Task Force, which was eventually disbanded after it was investigated for corruption by the FBI. Lena told us that during her meeting with Vera, a younger woman arrived at the house. This was Vera's daughter, Lynn. And she didn't join the conversation. She just sort of hovered, watching from another room. We tracked Lynn down, hoping to hear what she knew about her mom's meeting with Lena and to see if she knew anything about Isidore, anything that might help us in our investigation. Hello? Is this Lynn? Lynn was polite. We talked briefly. She told us she didn't know anything, and we made plans to talk again a few days later, maybe in person. 
But then she called back. And this time, she was upset. Hi, Lynn. It's Neil Shea. She did not want to do a recorded interview. So we're just going to play our side of the conversation. Well, I got your message, and uh, I, I've i got to apologize, although I'm not sure what what has upset you. You know, I don't mean, we don't mean to upset you by calling and asking questions. Your mother was just a public figure, and her name has come up several times. She listened politely for a few seconds, then she interrupted. She was angry, and she said not only did she not want to do an interview, she didn't even want us to use her mother's name. I understand, Lynn. I appreciate that. Unfortunately, I mean, your mother was a public elected official, so she's already sort of out there. We didn't need Lynn's permission to talk about her mother, but we did want to talk to her. Well, what, I mean, Lynn, what happened here? Lynn told us her family didn't have anything to do with Isidore's death. I understand, Lynn. Why do you think, though, that, why would Marcel, why would the granddaughter of this, this uh, murdered fellow come to see Vera, and why would Vera want to talk to her then? She said she didn't know why. And anyway, that was the past. She called it, quote, ancient history, and told us, people move on. We'd heard lines like these many times in Crittenden County, mostly from white people. To them, Isidore's murder apparently didn't feel like an open wound, or even a crime worth solving. It was just something you had to get over. Hi, Lynn. This is uh, Taylor. I'm very sorry to hear that we've upset you as as much as we have. We didn't intend to. Uh, I should note that as far as the Banks' family, for them, it doesn't feel like ancient history what happened to Isidore. Lynn interrupted to clarify. She wasn't talking about the Banks' family. She was talking about the Italian community. But anyway, she didn't want to help. And she said neither did her family. Then she hung up. It's like, I think that they're, I think that they're worried that they might be implicated in some way. Lynn's sudden anger made us suspicious, and the way she tried to dismiss Isidore's murder was really frustrating. We tried to talk to a few other members of Vera's family, including two of her sisters, but one by one, they shut us down. Their no's sounded like so many other no's we'd heard when we asked white people to talk about Isidore's death. Maybe they did know something that could help us. Maybe they didn't. Either way, it simply wasn't a conversation they wanted to have. For them, it seemed nothing good could come from revisiting this grim moment in the town's past. And so they chose to stay silent. But there was one person left who could help us understand what Vera knew about Isidore's lynching. The guy who'd set up the whole meeting. Ben McGee. And when you get a chance, would you please return a call to me, please? My number should show up on your phone, man. Thank you. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Because Hulu has new stuff all the time. 
Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Mm-hmm. Hey, is this cold, Ben? Can we get you another one? I, I'm fine. I drank cold coffee. We met Ben McGee at a busy cafe in Memphis with his wife, Rose. Ben is 77, barrel-chested and confident, and he moves through a room like he expects to know people. Ben is kind of a legend in Arkansas politics. In his day, he'd gone head-to-head with white supremacist farmers, prejudiced politicians, even Bill Clinton. He jokes that he's seen it all, and in some ways, he has. I'm going to share something else with you guys. And I ain't got nothing else to do, so I can just tell you some stories. <laughs> ben was born in Crittenden County in 1943. He grew up hearing about Isidore's success, and later, his lynching. Isidore was the first African-American to push many boundaries and break many barriers in Crittenden. And Ben, in his time, would do the same. Well... Somebody had to lead the effort, and uh, I led the effort. In the 1960s, fresh out of college, Ben moved to Marion, Isidore's hometown. The civil rights movement was sweeping the country, and Ben got a job in the county's agriculture department. He was one of the first African-Americans to work there. A decade later, he became the first African-American to sit on the Marion school board. In 1980, He was the first African-American chairman of the board of Arkansas State University. And in 1988, after a battle over voting districts and gerrymandering, Ben was elected state representative for Crittenden County. No African-American had held that office for a hundred years. And Ben's win broke the white grip on Delta politics. When I got in the legislature, the first thing I did, I got that legislative handbook. It had all the rules and regulations, and it had 252 pages in the rules. And I read that thing religiously. The average white boy in the legislature never read that book. Ben worked hard, rose quickly, and soon he sat on important committees. The, the Arkansas Democrat at that time might have had an article in a few times about one of the most powerful men in the legislature was little old Ben McGee. Today, people in Crittenden County still talk a lot about him, for his spectacular rise and for his hard fall. In 1998, Ben resigned from office after pleading guilty to federal charges of failure to pay taxes and bribery. Ben told us the charge was racially motivated, and while he admits to failing to pay taxes, he's always denied the bribery charge. Ben knew firsthand what it was like to be a powerful, wealthy African-American in the Deep South. And so he had always been suspicious of the circumstances surrounding Isidore's murder, the disappearance of his land, the convenient rolls of unpaid taxes, 
cops who claimed the crime had nothing to do with race, and the county record books themselves. And I guess we're going to get in Isidore now. So let, let me just share this with you. Isidore wasn't no dumbass, okay? Now, my grandparents knew him very well. Ben was in seventh grade when Isidore was killed, living with his grandparents on their farm in a town north of Marion. Isidore had a lot of land around Marion. He owned some of the better land around the city. He was all he was wrapped all around the city with land that he owned. He supposed old taxes in Creek, but he didn't owe no taxes. Because Isidore was very, very watchful about that. I mean, he was a businessman from his heart. He was a straight-up businessman. When Lena started searching for Isidore's killer in 2010, Ben was ready to help. And that's how he ended up arranging the meeting between Vera and Lena. She said, bring her to the house. I don't want nobody else to be here when she comes. And this is where things get messy. When we asked Ben about the meeting, he told us he didn't actually know what Vera had said. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't hear the conversation. She didn't want me to hear the conversation. Anyway, Vera told us some things. And ask her not to tell me she's because I don't want you to get being killed and I don't want you talking to me. She was trying to protect you. That's what Vera told me. Yeah. I know that makes sense. She didn't want me around. And I sat in the kitchen and after a while I went out and sat in my car waiting on the girl to come out. So nobody knows though what what Vera told Marcelina. I don't. Lena told us that Ben was there, listening that Vera had told them both about her father's reaction to Isidore's murder. But Ben said he wasn't there, because Vera was afraid that whatever she was about to reveal, it could get Ben in trouble, even after almost 60 years. And on top of this, we had the version from Vera's daughter, Lynn. Later, Lynn told us that she wasn't at the meeting at all. She made it seem like Ben and Lena had visited uninvited, pestering her mother with questions she couldn't answer. One meeting, three different versions of what happened. So we moved forward carefully, focusing on the one thing that seemed clear. We believed Vera knew something important about Isidore's murder, and we spent hours talking to Ben, trying to zero in on what it might have been. Ben and Vera had been close. In fact, Vera helped launch Ben's political career. When I ran... When my daughter got in the fifth grade at Marion School, no black had ever run for school board in Marion before. This was in the early 1970s, around the time the town schools finally became integrated. So, uh, the Italians, the Italians around Marion, the Italian farmers were very, very supportive. And, and they were, there were some Italian women who, who came to me and said, you know, you need to run. You need to represent your people on the school board. One of the Italian women he's talking about was Vera. Ben told us Vera resented the gang of old white power brokers who controlled Crittenden County. They once discriminated against Italians, keeping them out of white schools. And because of this, Vera and other Italians might have seen African-Americans as allies. Vera Simonetta went to the black churches, and she would get up, she would be at a black church and say, Bro, Pastor, can I have something to say? And you know what, that, that black preacher was going to turn that white woman down. He said, yes, ma'am, come on up front. What you want to say? He said, listen, 
I'm 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 ashamed of all of y'all. You need to be out there supporting Ben McGee, running for school board, gonna represent all of you. Y'all need representation. And she go to a black church and make one of Rip Roy's speeches on my behalf, and they all come there and vote for you. She was a fire. She was a piece of fire, brother. Ben and Vera shared a sense of duty to their community, and although the circumstances were different, they had firsthand experience living under white supremacy. Ben and Vera talked. And sometimes, Ben said, they talked about Isidore Banks. Vera did say that he had this land that this, this, this Italian woman's husband had passed away. And she rented all her land to Isidore. And there were some farmers who did not like that. So that would lead me to think the farmers who didn't like it had to be some of the Italian guys. Because they thought maybe she shouldn't have been doing that. Yeah. Then there was some there was some rumors that he was going with her. Yeah. So that's how they tried to explain it. The story Vera told Ben, it was pretty much the same story we'd read in the secret NAACP report, The Italian Woman, The Conflict Over Rented Land. Ben didn't believe Isidore actually had a romantic relationship with the widow. He thought it was just a rumor, part of a long history of behavior when it comes to lynchings. While protecting white womanhood was the motive for some lynchings, for others, it was a justification imposed after the fact, regardless of the actual motive. Still, hearing versions of a similar story from Ben and the NAACP report, we felt like we were getting closer to something. But we were still missing some key connective tissue. Who were these Italian farmers? Who was this woman who had rented land to Isidore? And where was her land? And you have no idea who this woman was. No, no, I don't. I don't know who she, Vera knew her name, but I don't know who she was. Man, we just missed Vera. Yeah, we just missed it, like everybody. Vera walking an encyclopedia. She knew everybody did. For a long time, all these stories about how and why Isidore was killed had floated around us like pages torn out of a book and tossed into the wind. Whenever one page came into focus. Another drifted out of view. But slowly, the theory that Italian farmers had killed Isidore in a feud over land made more sense. It lined up with other details of Isidore's life, and especially with the memories of Dorothy Williams, Isidore's daughter. Dorothy's mother was a sharecropper. She was also Isidore's girlfriend, his mistress. And she worked and lived on his land. Dorothy was too young to know whether Isidore owned that particular piece of land or rented it but she vividly remembered other things that happened on the land just before Isidore was lynched. One day in particular stood out in her memory. She was on the porch with her mother, watching as white men in trucks drove up and down the dirt road near her house, filling the air with dust. I know they was up to something. I was, and the young young, I, I, could know, I could tell they was up to something. I could see the expression on my mom and daddy's face and the other men's that was out there. I could tell they was out there to do some, to do some harm to us, but I didn't know what it was. Dorothy didn't know if the men were Italian or not. She was just six years old at the time, and their faces flew past in a blur. But she couldn't miss her mother's reaction. I can tell by the way she was talking. I can tell by the way she, her eyes were looking. All that. She was really scared, you know. Then, things got worse. Dorothy says that soon after the trucks came, the family's farm animals were killed and their crops poisoned. Anything that we possessed, they got rid of. Little by little, they even sprayed our, our land so we couldn't grow no peas and 
stuff like that. You know, they, they sprayed all that. We couldn't, uh, we couldn't use it. I would say we had to go because we, we didn't have no livestock. Then he got rid of that. And, 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 the, and the, uh, the place that we could grow our food, they sprayed that. We couldn't do nothing with that. The only one thing left for them to do was kill us. Not long after this, Isidore put his family on a truck and sent them to St. Louis. It was a huge decision, one he wouldn't have made lightly. Isidore had three different families living in Crittenden County, but Dorothy's was the only one he sent away. This suggests Isidore was worried, that he believed Dorothy and her family were exposed, vulnerable, in a way that his other families were not. These details made us wonder if Dorothy could have lived on the land at the center of Isidore's feud with the Italian farmers. When we put Dorothy's memories together with what we'd heard from Ben McGee, from Lena Williams, and from the NAACP report, it supported the theory of an escalating conflict, that it could have been Italian farmers who were intimidating Isidore's family, scaring them, ramping up the threats from drive-bys to animal slaughter and crop poisonings, until finally, Isidore bundled Dorothy and her family onto a truck and sent them north. The NAACP report said that the Italian farmers owned land right beside Isidore's rented parcel. We thought that if we could just discover where Dorothy lived, we could cross-reference with old records and figure out who farmed nearby. But there was one big hitch. Dorothy couldn't remember. Dorothy was just a little kid. She knew her world as a patchwork of cotton fields and bayous, neighbors' houses, and nameless dirt roads. She couldn't point to a map and say, right there. But Dorothy did recall some details. She told us she could look out from her house, down over the fields, and right into Isidore's yard in the center of town. And Ben McGee told us that Vera Simonetti said Isidore's rented land was somewhere east of town, out by the levee that snakes along the bank of the Mississippi River. The eastern part of Marion is huge. Thousands of acres of fields and woods, and trying to figure out where Dorothy's home stood 66 years ago felt like looking for a needle in a haystack. But then, a couple of months after we spoke to Ben, we got a tip through another source, the owner of a barbecue joint in West Memphis. River Trace is a sprawling area in East Marion, bordered by a swampy old channel of the Mississippi. We drove past it almost every time we came to town, and we knew from our study of old record books that during Isidore's day, a lot of the land in River Trace had been owned by Italian families. But before the tip, River Trace had never stood out to us, and we'd never gone in. So during our last visit to Marion, we did. It might have been actually... This is your yeah. house right here. This one? Yeah. Today, River Trace is an upscale neighborhood. Some of the county's biggest names live here in neat brick houses, surrounded by leafy trees, sun-scorched lawns, and the hum of air conditioners. As we drove slowly down the quiet streets, it was hard to figure out why the tipster had told us to search here. Marion had changed so much since Isidore's day. What was now a suburb would have been all farmland. So we tried to imagine the landscape as Isidore would have seen it. No lawns, no trees, nothing but wide-open fields and sharecropper shacks. And then we glimpsed something, and it stopped us cold. It was a view between two houses. We pulled over and stared, down through the yards to a swamp, across the swamp through some dark cypress trees, and right into the center of town, to the spot where Isidore's house once stood. It was like a bolt of lightning, 
this. This could be the land that Dorothy lived on. The land Isidore had died for. Next time on Deep South, we tell you what we think happened to Isidore Banks. Unfinished Deep South is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher and Market Road Films. Written and produced by us, Taylor Hom and Neil Shea. Editing by Peter Clowney, Gianna Palmer, and Tracy Samuelson. The show is produced by Laura Kalaluri and Stephanie Kariuki. Our executive producers are Lynn Nottage, Tony Gerber, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. Our mixing engineer is Casey Holford. Special thanks to our fact checker, Michelle Harris. Deep South features blues, folk, and gospel music performed by Hubby Jenkins. Original theme music and score by Casey Holford, with musicians Ryan Thornton and Dan Costello. Special thanks to the extended family of East Door Banks, who gave generously of their time, their patience, and their memories. Thanks also to Professor Margaret Burnham and the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University, to Willie Gammon, and to the 78 Project. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. While I'm walking by my Savior's side Honey in the rock Honey in the rock Oh, well, it tastes just like honey Tasting sweet The Lord is good Oh, well, it tastes just like honey In the rock This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.